It's good to see everyone this morning. Um, just a special welcome to those who are new or visiting uh, our church family. I just want you to know how grateful we are that you're here. And uh, if you belong to Christ, then this is part of his family. You are brothers and sisters, and uh, we want you to know you belong here. And we hope you feel safe and comfortable and uh, very quickly a part of the fellowship of believers here. If you don't know Christ, then you are here for a purpose. And as we talked about in communion and, and God moving towards us, he uh, is clearly moving towards you or you wouldn't be here. And so I'm grateful that you're here and you get to uh, be a part of what God speaks through his word. And I pray on behalf of all of us that it speaks to all of our hearts um, this morning. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to jump right into our passage this morning. Acts chapter 18. If you will, begin reading with me in verse 1. After these things, he left Athens, he being Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy, specifically Rome, where his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. See, one of the great things, and this passage is a great example, about the Bible is that it is written in the context of human history. In other words, the events of the Christian church are, are interwoven into the events of world history. In fact, this is part of what validates the truth of Scripture. It doesn't just stand alone as something written and unattached to what's been happening in the world. It's actually a part of what has happened in the world. People like Jesus and, and Paul live right alongside those in our history books like Claudius, the emperor of Rome, and Pontius Pilate, real people, a part of our history. These connections are really important to understanding our passage this morning. And so I want you to listen closely as we walk through this together. Verse 2, we're introduced to two new characters in Luke's history of the early church. We learn their names, Aquila and Priscilla. And we learn that they came from Corinth because of something Claudius did in Rome. Our passage says that Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And this is an historical fact. You can look it up. It's in your history books. It actually happened. And Aquila and Priscilla were part of that because that's where they lived. So we can already see hidden within Roman history is a connection with the early church. And that connection actually goes all the way back to Pentecost because in Acts chapter 2, it says that people gathered from every nation to Jerusalem where they celebrated this feast. The nations listed specifically include places like Pontus and Asia and Egypt. It says even from Rome. It says that on that day, Pentecost, that there were over 3,000 of those people represented in those nations who came to faith in Jesus Christ, which means there were Christians who went back to Pontius. 
to Asia, to Egypt, and even to Rome. And we know that's true because there were small Christian communities that began to form in each of these places. And it created a a growing tension between the Jewish communities and the Christian communities. We can see that very clearly in Paul's missionary journeys, can't we? He's been run out of at least five different cities by the Jewish community. Three of which most recently include Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. It's important to understand that that these angry riots being stirred up by the Jews were an annoyance to the Romans. The Romans weren't particularly fond of the Jews, and it was very evident by their actions that the Jews just really hated the Romans. So when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, it was likely influenced by Jewish conflict with Christians. We'll see this play itself out in our passage this morning. So keep that in mind, all right? But let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira. Excuse me, Aquila and Priscilla. That's a different story. Not nearly as exciting as this one, let me tell you. Yes, a test, yes. I just want to make sure you're listening. Clearly you are. Thank you. But go back to verse 2. Where was Aquila from? Pontius. And we know that they fled from where? Rome. Well, if you'll go back and look at Acts chapter 2 sometime, I want you to see those two particular places specifically listed in the list of nations, both Pontius and Rome. I don't know if Aquila and Priscilla were there at Pentecost in person, but what I do know is when they came in contact with Paul, they were following Jesus Christ. They were in the same trade. They were tent makers. That's what brought them together. But their friendship formed because they shared the same faith. Their connection was because they were both Christians. They followed Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. This is a divinely ordained encounter. At least at the time, there were probably uh, 200,000 people living in Corinth. And because of what we already know about what's happening within Christian communities, if you were a Christian, you probably kept it under wraps for fear of persecution. But in the midst of all that, God intersected the lives of Paul and Aquila and Priscilla there in Corinth. And what we'll later learn is that Aquila and Priscilla become hugely significant in the life of the early church. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you Romans chapter 16. Verse 3 and 4, it says, Paul writing says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. You see, some things are just too coincidental to be a coincidence. And the intersection of these lives is not a coincidence. God is at work. Let's continue in our passage in verse 5. It goes on and says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. 
and he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So we learn here that Timothy and Silas have come down from Thessalonica and, and Berea and have joined Paul now in Corinth. And for the most part, it seems like they bring good news. We know that's true because of things written in other letters that Paul writes soon after this encounter. One of them that we'll begin looking at next week is in Thessalonians. In, in Thessalonians, he writes and says to uh, the people in Thessalonians, he says, you also became imitators of us, of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is the report Paul or Silas and Timothy brought back to Paul, and he's writing, reflecting on this message, thankful for their faithfulness in the midst of persecution. He goes on in verse 8 and says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we'll begin to look more at that next week. But this is the report that Timothy and, and Silas brought back about what was happening in that church there in Thessalonica and in Philippi. And in Berea. And we also learn in our passage uh, that he's able to now dedicate himself to full-time ministry there in Corinth. And we know that that's possible because of a donation given through the church in uh, Philippi. It says in 2 Corinthians, when he's writing back to the church which he's now establishing, in uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, it says... Um, Verse 9, sorry. And when we were present with you and in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So what Paul is saying is the reason he could step away from his job as a tent maker to dedicate him fully to ministry was because of a donation specifically given by the church in Philippi brought to him by Timothy and Silas. This is good news, right? There are good things happening as a result of the ministry of Paul. But right alongside that encouragement is the frustration of the ongoing opposition from the Jews. The word we translate resisted in verse 6 is used to describe an organized opposition. So the Jews in Corinth are essentially doing the same thing that has happened to Paul in most every city he's visited so far. They don't just disagree with what Paul is saying. They absolutely want to silence his message. So Paul finally reaches a breaking point. He will no longer reason in the synagogues with the Jews in Corinth. He will now take that gospel message to the Gentiles in that city. As far as the Jews, he says, your blood is on your own head. He says, I have been faithful to do exactly what God called me to do, and you clearly are not interested in that message. 
But before he walked away, we learned that there were some really important people that came to faith through his message. The first one is a uh, Roman citizen named Titius Justus. That's where Paul went initially. But then we go on to learn that Crispus, who is a a leader, a, a rabbi in the synagogue, also came to faith. Not just him, but his entire household. And these conversions would have no small impact on the church in Corinth because these are men of influence in that community. So this should be really encouraging for Paul, right? But apparently, it was also a source of anxious concern. Look at what he writes in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is a really encouraging verse to me when I read this because it shows me that Paul is human. The reason Jesus appears in in a dream is because he's afraid. That's why Jesus tells him, do not be afraid any longer. Paul is going to bed at night with anxious thought of fearful concerns. But why? I mean, the gospel's being proclaimed in Corinth, and, and people of significance are coming to faith in Corinth. Why is, why is Paul afraid? Isn't that good stuff? Yeah. But think about what usually happens next in all the places where Paul has already been. Again, let me remind you, run out of town in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. What makes Corinth any different than any of those places he's ever been? He knows there's a cost to success in ministry. The greater the response to the message, the more intense the attack on the messenger. And make no mistake, ministry is a spiritual battle. And Paul is human. And so he's weary from this spiritual battle. I'm sure he's incredibly grateful of all that has been happening and the evidence of God's hand at work, but he's worried. He's worried about what's coming next. Because Paul's just like us. His worst fears are the ones he imagines. His fear of the future has weakened his faith in the moment. So look at how Jesus comforts him in that vision. He says four very important words. I am with you. I am with you. Speak boldly, Paul. Do not be silent, Paul, for for I am with you. He says, I will protect you. And he explains by saying, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? Many people in this city. Here's what I think it means. I believe the people that Jesus is referring to that are there in Corinth are those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because we learn that there is a church that is established in the city of Corinth. And Jesus will protect Paul because Paul is the one who will bring the message of hope to the people. Nothing has the power to interrupt what God has ordained to fulfill. 
Now, Jesus didn't say it'd be easy. He didn't say that it would be trouble-free. But what he does say is that my presence is the only provision that you need. I will equip you to accomplish anything that I have called you to do. So don't worry about the future. Because the future is in my hands. Trust me. I got this. Look at how he continues in verse 12. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews were of one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. But once again, we're going to enter right into the events of human history. Galileo who was actually the brother of the famous philosopher Seneca, served as the proconsul in Achaia for one year. That's an historical fact. And during that time, the Jews demanded that he make a judgment against the Christians. Their accusation was that Paul was advocating the worship of God contrary to the law. And here's what's really important to understand, so stick with me and listen closely. According to Roman law, other religions throughout the Roman Empire were tolerated as long as they were willing to worship the Roman gods, with one exception, the Jews, because the Jews only believed in one God. And because the Jews had assisted the Romans in a really important battle, Julius Caesar actually gave them an exemption to this Roman religious law. They were the only ones who were not required to worship Roman gods. So the Jews are trying to convince Galileo that since Christians are not Jewish, this exemption does not apply to them. And therefore, their Christian worship is in defiance to Roman law because they believe that Jesus is God. Do you see it? However, according to Rome, the Christians are just another sect of the Jewish community. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And when he was crucified, he was labeled as king of the Jews. So that's why he turns to them and says, according to Rome, this is not our issue. This is your problem. Deal with it yourselves. But I want you to understand, before we move past that, how significantly important this is in the life of the early church. Because Galileo, in his judgment, is giving Christians the same immunity that was afforded only to the Jews. It is a major reason the Christian church was allowed to exist in the Roman Empire at all. This is part of how Jesus fulfills his promise of protection. Now, as you might expect, this infuriated the Jews. <laughs> they didn't want to be associated with the Christians at all. 
which is why they made such a strong opposition to, to Paul and to the Christian communities. It's why all these uprisings were taking place within the Roman Empire, instigated by the Jewish communities, and it's why the Romans were so irritated with them because they kept disrupting the peace of the empire, in their opinion. So that's why the crowd unleashes its anger against Sosthenes, a leader of the Jewish synagogue. In the final verses, we learn that Paul remains in Corinth, actually for some time later, for many days, it says. Long enough, we know, to establish the church in Corinth, of which he would later write his letter to the Corinthians. We also know that when he did decide to leave, he takes Timothy and Silas and Luke. He also brings along Aquila and Priscilla. They end up going to Ephesus there for a short time. But we learn that when Paul leaves, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. And they are the ones who helped start the church in Ephesus. In fact, we learn later that it actually begins by meeting in their home. That's the Ephesian church. And Paul will continue on to make his way back to Antioch to complete his second missionary journey. So as we think about all that we've talked about this morning, I want us to just take some time to consider how, how does all this apply to us? Because here we are, members of Melanie Park Church in Lubbock, Texas. I mean, how important can that be, right? But that being said, we too are part of the unfolding story of the Christian church. 2,000 years later, get your head around that, 2,000 years later, we are still holding firmly to the truths that were being proclaimed by Paul in Corinth. And our church family is firmly grounded in the events of human nature and human history. In the same way, God worked through, the Paul, uh, through Paul in the church in Corinth. He continues to work through this church as well. We are his people, set apart for his purpose to make a difference in the world in the name of Jesus Christ. And when you think about the, the calling and the commission of his church, it kind of makes everyday life a little bit more important to realize that we're not just passing through. We are a part of God's unfolding redemptive plan within human history, right here in Lubbock, Texas. Our influence is interwoven into that human history, and that history is divinely ordained by the hand of God, just like we see in our passage this morning. So with that in mind, we should ask ourselves, how do we see the hand of God at work? What are the evidences of that happening around us. Let me give you a couple of things that we shouldn't miss. The first is this. Connections with other Christians are not an accident. If God can intersect the lives of two people from Rome with a man from Athens in a city of Corinth with 200,000 people around, he can do the same thing right here. So please don't take these encounters for granted. And more specifically, don't overlook the importance of the relationships right here within this church family. These are divine encounters orchestrated 
by the hand of God. You are here for a purpose. In one way or another, God intends for our life together to be used to carry out his kingdom purposes in this world. What we see with Aquila and and Priscilla and Paul is true for you and I as well. So, So we should ask ourselves, how does God intend to work through us? How's that plan of redemption continuing through the lives of these people, of us? And with that, let me remind you that ministry is a spiritual battle. Just like we see in Acts, there is still very strong opposition to the truth of God, increasingly so with time. And and because of that, it's easy to be discouraged, to become fearful, to want to remain silent, out of protection. And so, like Paul, we need to be reminded, don't be silent, for I am with you. So, let me remind you that what Paul, or God said to, to Paul, he says to us, I am with you, fear not. The Bible says that if God is with us, then who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing, no one, nothing. We know that because of what that passage goes on to say in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, the promise of God's presence is an eternal promise. We belong to him. And when we do, there is nothing that can ever, ever, ever separate us from his presence. God has ordained the days of every single person in this room. And there is nothing in this world that can interrupt his plan for your life. So no matter what you face, God's provision, his presence is all you need. Jesus says exactly what he said to Paul. He says to you, do not be afraid for I am with you. It makes me think of Isaiah 41.10. Do not be afraid. Do not anxiously look around you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. He says, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise. We talked about Psalm 23 uh, recently where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff protect me. It goes on at the end and says, surely your loving kindness and goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promise of God's presence is an eternal provision. So be encouraged. And be reminded, we don't come to church every Sunday because we have it all together. We don't have it all together, so we come to church every Sunday. 
And that includes me. I stand up here every week proclaiming truths to you that I need to hear just as much as you do. Raj and I were talking this morning. He says, I long for this day because this day with these people in this word and these songs are how I make it through the rest of the week. That's why the Bible tells us don't forsake your gathering together. This is the habit of some. But encourage each other towards love and good deeds. And even more as the day is drawing near. Guess what, people? The day is drawing near. We are one day closer to Christ's return right now than we were yesterday. The day is drawing near. And so encourage each other. Don't forsake this time together. We're not here because we have it all together. We don't have it all together, which is why we're here. And the other thing I want to remind you of. Being here is a reminder of God's presence through his word, through the songs we sing, through the lives of his people, through the work of his spirit. And you take that with you everywhere you go. So be encouraged. Fear not, for I am with you. It's an eternal promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word, how you have made yourself known. Once again, Father, through the power of your word, through the work of your spirit, you have moved towards us. You've spoken to our hearts. You've invited us to trust. You've made yourself known through your word, through our music, through our fellowship. And so, Father, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that we hear the words that you spoke to Paul in that dream, that we would speak them out loud to each other this morning. Fear not, for he's with us. If he is with us, nothing is against us because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Praise God. Amen. Have a great day.